Welcome to the Business Perspectives by Hawk FX, a podcast series with industry experts in international business, providing clarity on doing business overseas. Hawk FX, clarity through perspective. So welcome to this edition of the Business Perspectives podcast. I'm Greg Smith, and today I'm speaking to Barry Rogers. He's the founder of ABL Advisory, an advisory firm for trade receivables. He also has an intermediary business, Growth Finance, at www.growth-finance.com. And Barry is dealing every day in helping clients finance imports and exports. So welcome to the show, Barry. Yeah, good uh, good afternoon, good morning. Thank you. And if we start off, we're, today we're going to be talking about uh, a variety of issues within the trade finance space. So if we maybe start off uh, in that in a, in a fairly high level, do you want to tell us a little bit about the funding options that are available at the moment to companies? Yes, of course, trade finance tr- uh, finances virtually all the trades around the world every year it's it's trillions and trillions of dollars worth of trade um and over 50 say up to 50 years ago it was really the domain of the banks um and the banks uh, financed international trade uh through letters of credit uh and bills of exchange and these uh, two instruments are still quite prominent within the trade finance space. However, the the usage is diminishing, uh, not significantly, but significantly enough to enable other types of funding mechanisms to be used. So the other options are uh, open account uh, trade finance, where uh, the financier finances just invoices without any payment mechanism or instrument uh, supporting that invoice. So mm. the exporter exports the goods, the invoice is sent to the trade finance house uh, together with the shipping documents and the trade finance company finances the trade. Um, and then uh, the buyer would pay typically 60 to 90 days once his, after he's received the goods. So this enables the uh, shipping time to be financed and also the deferred period enabling the buyer to uh, perhaps sell the stock. Um, uh, and this is a very uh, uh, large part of trade finance now, the open account trade finance, mm. and that's Huge. and that's helping the the buyers significantly with their cash flow. It means they're not having to find and fund that period, as you say, where the goods are on the water and whilst they're stocking and selling the uh, the goods on. That's right. Yes, it helps both the exporter because. He's getting paid immediately. He puts the goods on the ship and the buyer gets up to six months uh, trade credit uh, to help his cash flow. Mm. But of course, some countries like uh, Bangladesh and India, for example, have a law, unlike the UK, where any exporter must receive 
90 or 95 percent of the payment before the goods leave the shores of India and Bangladesh. Mm. So the exporter can't ship the goods without being paid in full. Uh, so the Trade Finance House uh, enables the exporter to comply with the uh, with legislation. Yeah, many countries, of course, don't have that requirement, but those two countries do. Mm. Um, so, open account trade finance used by uh, trade finance companies is often always supported by uh, credit insurance, because uh, there's always a danger that the buyer doesn't pay. So, the trade finance house usually takes out credit insurance on the buyer uh, to mitigate the risk of non-payment and mm. buyer buyer insolvency. Mm. Um, so the extent to which the trade finance company can finance the trades is really often dependent upon the trade credit insurance limit they can obtain on the buyer. Yeah. So if if the buyer is very small, for example, or they don't have a big balance sheet or not a very credit worthy business, then the chances of uh, having trade finance are pretty minimal, actually. Mm. So what are the, what, what's the next on the list of the options? Well, the, the, the list uh, on, the, on the options uh, are really to go to the bank and, and uh, get a letter because the, the exporter won't give them credit, of mm. course, and the trade finance house won't give them credit. So the only option is to pay cash to the exporter and therefore it must go to the bank and, and find some mechanism to pay the exporter cash. And that's mm. usually driven by a letter of credit or a documentary acceptance or a bill of exchange payable at site mm. but of course uh, that's easier said than done for the buyer to do that he's literally got to have cash or collateral to support such a, a site payment mm. site means uh, payable upon presentation of the documents they call it site yeah um, so uh, you know small buyers do struggle there's no question about that um and and in terms of other uh, other instruments that are available, other funding options that are available, two um, two companies uh, dealing overseas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've seen the emergence and in the financial press about supply chain finance. Mm. Um, supply chain finance is is uh, is buyer driven, so. Whereas in a lot of cases, invoice factoring and trade finance, which are very close relatives of each other, whilst these are generally aimed at the exporter, supply chain finance is sometimes called reverse factoring. And this is marketed and aimed at the buyer rather than the seller. So the buyer, I mean, all significant buyers around the world have supply chain finance programs mm. where the supplier hooks up into the program uh, and they get have the choice of getting paid immediately uh, that the goods have been shipped. Mm. So supply chain finance is a, is a buyer-driven facility, but certainly supply chain finance isn't suitable for the small buyer, so it mm. wouldn't get around a small buyer not being eligible for trade finance. Supply chain finance programs are usually aimed at medium to large companies. Mm. And is that because the... Um because of the requirements of putting that program in place and because of the creditworthiness? 
Yeah, it's both of those things, Greg, um, is to make it worthwhile for the the financier of the program to make it worthwhile and usually the uh the the, the you know the small buyers just don't have the, the credit standing uh to take the credit mm. because you know the supply chain financier is paying the supplier on the buyer's behalf so if the buyer hasn't got a very good balance sheet then it's just not going to happen mm. And and what about compare supply chain credit by comparison to that? Uh, supply chain uh, finance um, uh, is a is a you know is is one of the three or four mechanisms that are used for cross border trade. Mm. Um, usually, um, these trades are financed by a variety of different funders. I mean, as I said, you know, years ago it was the domain of the banks, but mm. now we see a lot of invoice finance platforms uh, where investors uh, can buy trade receivables on an ad hoc basis or can buy trade receivables um, on a more structured basis. Um, so the the easy invoice finance platforms hook up the seller, uh, the buyer, and the funder into one portal, mm. um, and these are providing a solution. But I don't believe that they represent a big part of the market at the moment. Mm. Do you think that's that's an area that will will grow in in an environment where we've seen? platforms and the connectivity and the power of those networks and platforms grow in lots of other industries do you think it's an area that will continue to grow in this space where there is perhaps a need for the you know the buyer and seller particularly if it's a smaller buyer and where funders uh, particularly in the current environment are looking for yield Yes, I mean, it, it, there's lots and lots of these platforms around the world and there, there seems to be a new one or two every week. And, uh, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not um, decrying that or uh, I think that's healthy. But when you look at the number that are actually very successful and, and created a good presence, it's, it's really only a handful. Mm. And these ones are... are um, omnipresent in some markets are uh, really it's a geographical reason why that they have been successful so you know there's a number of big platforms in in asia mm. and if you're talking to someone that knows about invoice platforms and you you mention singapore or dubai or somewhere else they'll immediately say one of these big platforms is because mm. they've created a great regional presence and and these ones have been very successful and in fact, some of them have been bought out by larger financial institutions, which is really good to see. Mm. Uh, but many of the platforms, in my opinion, from what I can see, do, do struggle. But they represent a good, if it's a successful platform, they represent a good place for investors to invest in trade receivables because the platform usually, not always, usually does all the due diligence uh, and the KYC and AML checks. Uh, but those that don't, you know, you still need to do that yourself. Mm. But if 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 the invoices can come to you fully compliant, and all you've got to do is fund it, um, uh, that's a marvelous opportunity. 
in theory, the risk then is is relatively limited if it's known quantities of buyer amounts and and period, um, and you're happy with that that credit risk. As you say, that should be a a yeah. relatively clear cut decision on you know the worth how worthwhile it is at, at the uh, at the price point. Yes, okay. I mean a, a lot of uh, trade a trade now. Uh, you know, a lot of trade finance houses and private debt funds often just want to buy uh, receivables where the debtor, the obligor, is based in the USA, North America, the UK, or the EU, which, of course, are very stable, mm. uh, secure markets with open source information. But, you know, sometimes a growth finance gets asked to look at a buyer in Vietnam or Malaysia or Indonesia, mm. and, and often we just can't do it because we can't find a funder that's willing to take that country risk. Okay, uh, and these are fantastic trades, but we just need more people to be able to fund in those countries. And is that is that an issue with getting funding from here into those countries, rather because there's that lack of of information, or how how would it otherwise be happening within within the country itself, or is the market just not well enough developed? Um, I would say it's just not well enough developed in terms of trade financiers and financiers in general mm. being able to find those trades um, because these are good markets. They're, they're probably good buyers, but the appetite has waned certainly in, since uh, the pandemic, which has, which has had a dreadful effect on confidence, mm. um, as you would expect it to have had. Mm. And is there anything else in in terms of funding options, rounding out the, uh, the 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 options available to to companies? I think uh, largely credit insurance underpins a lot of investors and financiers' risk, and the trade finance, uh, the sorry, the credit insurance marketplace just like the funders have been severely knocked during the, uh, the pandemic. And honestly speaking, you know, some of the, even some of the largest credit insurers probably wouldn't be around today if it wasn't for the governmental support um, because the claim levels have, as you can imagine, gone through the roof. And we, we're still nowhere back to normal. Okay. Um, I think it's really changed the landscape. And in terms of you're saying the credit insurers have the claims that they've uh, had against policies they've written have gone up significantly. Yes. Uh, and is that something that's that's likely to continue? I know there's obviously been lots of government schemes here and uh, around the world in other markets that have perhaps supported companies and reduced those claims. Do you think will get better from here or do you think there's still uh, you know worse to come i i hesitate to say to be honest i don't think there's anything worse that could have happened and that's already happened <laughs> you know it's i mean when someone says to you that the uk gdp is going to sink by 20 percent, you'd say that they're a comedian and should be on the stage but <laughs> Um, I'm not quite sure to what extent it reached 20, but I don't think it was too far away. Um, and for something like that, I mean, it's just extraordinary, really. Mm. And so you, 
I mean, for them to be still here after the pandemic, I mean, them being the credit insurers, is a fantastic job and well done to them. Mm. Uh, But what comes out of it is a different product at the end of the day. Uh, is a different product. They'll be more selective. They want higher premiums. They'll be more cautious. Uh, you know, and you can't blame them. Okay. And do, do you think ultimately that's, you say, one, they're going to be more cautious and more selective. So that suggests that it's going to, again, be be tougher for the small buyers if if they're not, you know, going to be as... Uh, seen as credit worthy by the credit insurers, that, that suggests it's going to be even harder for them going forward. No, it should actually be easier because if you can imagine, if you're an exporter and you've got a customer that you've been dealing with for five years and you know him very well, they've always paid you within a few days past due date, um, you, you know, you know them as well as you can do. But the pandemic comes along and their business is 50% disrupted or what have you. You then have to look at that uh, company in a completely different light as if you don't know them. Yeah. Because the business has actually changed considerably. Is it still solvent? Um, You know, so you really have to reappraise that, but the buyer as if you don't know them. Mm. And so do credit insurers. So over the ensuing next two or three years, when the businesses start getting back to normal and start filing accounts that are back to the normal basis they were pre pandemic, then those. the confidence will start coming back and the credit limit should be back to where they were before. But it sounds like from what you're saying, again, that that will take some time when you're waiting yeah. for, A, you're waiting for the, the, the business levels to return to normal and B, yeah. you're then waiting for some proof of that in the form of accounts and so on. Yes, indeed. And you also mentioned there, um, it's likely that they... I guess insurance markets, as as with many others, yeah, you know, it's cyclical. And once they've had more claims, the the premiums have risen and are likely to either continue to rise or stay relatively higher. Um, do you think that will again all feed through and, and and add to costs that that businesses will have to bear in using these products? To some extent, I think the main problem at the moment, Greg, is that the cost of containers is just through the roof. Mm. I mean, pre-pandemic, it was about two and a half thousand dollars for a container. Now it's it, it could be twenty thousand yeah. dollars. <laughs> uh, you know, we've seen it go to ten, twelve and a half. 17 but i haven't looked for a couple of weeks i don't know what it is now whether it's gone up or down but that's an horrendous cost and a lot a lot of uh some of the dynamics have changed as well some powerful suppliers where their products are in demand whereas now they would they used to take say a 30 percent deposit and let the buyer have 70 percent over three months now they're demanding cash before delivery Mm. Um, and that really has caused a great deal, great deal of uh, cash flow problems for some companies. Wow, that is a big change. And and how how do they approach that? Is it then a case of they need to reduce volumes, or or, or they have to look at, at lending and and effectively bear those costs? Yeah, they do. I mean, you can still buy the supplier's products, but you don't take preference anymore. 
Mm. You have to the ones that pay cash up front uh, get preference, mm. uh, and this uh, is to some extent what's caused some of the items to be missing off our shelves. Uh, I'm you know I'm given to understand that some garden furniture is very difficult to get hold of, and and, and some other things. It's because the because of the payment terms are very much hardened, mm. um, e- 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 even to the extent that. Um, you know, some whereas they'll be not on open account before the the exporters want uh, letters of credit at site, um, not a use and sell C say over ninety days, but a site LC. Yeah. So it's become much more difficult. As you for, say, there's some buyers. Yeah, as you say, there's so many factors that businesses have been hit by between container shortages and costs and. Uh, changes in these market dynamics. I think it's making it very difficult for businesses and, and pushing up prices ultimately, which is something we've seen coming through in, in the, the statistics and, and that central banks are somewhat concerned about. They're all seeing through it and, and their view seems to be generally that it will be transitory and we will see things get back to normal. Is, do you, do you think that will be the case? Yeah, I think it's inevitable. Well, it has to. I mean, even before the pandemic, there was a two trillion underfunding uh, situation with cross-border trade. Two mm. trillion is probably double that now. Uh, so it's always been an underserved area in terms of finance. But you know, we have uh, ABL Advisory and Growth Finance have solutions. Uh, and I would also, you know, I, I'm going to boast a little bit here. Forgive me, <laughs> forgive me. If we can't, if we can't come up with a solution, then I don't think anyone can. We, we pretty much know what to do to get a trade done. So, how about that for a broad statement? <laughs> that sounds good. And in terms of how you're helping clients, how do you? How, how does growth finance? work typically for for uh, an average client uh, well we have a uh, we have sales directors posted in some of the countries in southeast asia so we don't just work for example i mean we're a uk based business we don't just work with uk importers and exporters in fact you know it represents quite a small part of what we do so we go to the exporters in bangladesh and india and pakistan talk to the exporter and get the deals from them Mm. um and that's how we manage to have quite a quite a healthy deal flow Okay. Interesting. And how are you seeing the market over there with that kind of insight? It's not getting back to normal it, okay. uh, by any means. There's still a long way to go. But if you had asked me that question five, six weeks ago, I'd say it's dreadful, but it's, <laughs> mu- it's much improved. Okay. Well, that's, that's hopefully a, a positive sign. And I guess just thinking a bit more, more generally, we talked about some of the changes that we've seen from people going to banks typically, uh, and, and letters of credit and, and, uh, different instruments, uh, compared to where we are now. Looking forward, you know, beyond the pandemic and with the changes to come, what do you, do you see big changes ahead in the way the industry will, will work and the options that may be available to businesses? Yes. yes, I do. I think it probably, I mean, I'm 67, still young at heart, full <laughs> of energy, full of energy and passionate. 
but it will probably outsee me <laughs> in terms of uh, the major changes. They are gradual, but I think we are seeing, um, you know, everyone talks about technology, big data and digitalization. And these are wonderful things. Oh, let's not forget AI, uh, yeah. which, is, which is a very important uh, point. But all the trade flows and paper documentation are gradually being digitalized. But I think maybe in 15, 20 years time, I would like to think that most trades will be financed through a digital platform, which brings great productivity, speed, um, transparency, uh, transparency, security, um, and hopefully additional funding because funders will be more confident of the security being given to them. Mm. Uh, so we're seeing a gradual process of this uh, all the time. Uh, I mean, only a couple of weeks ago, we had a government act passed in, in Parliament uh, changing the rules around certain uh, um, um, bills of exchange, digital bills of exchange, for example. Okay. So we're, we're seeing lots of great changes. Okay, sounds like a positive note to finish on. Um, thank you very much, Barry. I think we're just about to time, but thank thank you for your wisdom and experience. You mentioned your 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 age, which I think goes to show the uh, the level of experience uh, and and the changes you've seen and and, and will continue to see. I'm I'm sure. Um, so thank you for an interesting discussion about trade finance and lending. Um, for our listeners, you can get in touch with Barry Rogers at abladvisory.co.uk. Uh, you will be able to see his details on the podcast link wherever you're listening to this. So if you if you ha- like what you've heard, do hit subscribe. We have some interesting uh, additional episodes coming up uh, around business perspectives and doing business internationally so thank you for listening to the business perspectives podcast with me greg smith and today barry rogers thank you for the opportunity thank you for listening to business perspectives by hawk fx clarity through perspective for all your money transfer needs whether you are a business or an individual visit hawkfx.com